Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us in our study on the epistles. And guess what? We have made it. We have made it to the final book in our study of the epistles. And we've made it to the final book in the Bible. And that is, of course, the book of the Revelation. And what can we really begin to say about the book of Revelation? It's an interesting book, to say the very least. The book of Revelation is one of the most mysterious books of the Bible. The book of Revelation is one of the most debated books of the Bible. It's also one of the most fascinating books of the Bible. For people sometimes find themselves on two ends of the spectrum of the book of Revelation. Some people just find it so fascinating that they see it as we are living in the times that Revelation is coming to pass. And they can go to the newspaper or they can turn on the, the television and see events that correspond with the book of Revelation. Some people see just about every event that takes place in the world as part of the book of Revelation. And then you have the other side of the spectrum of people that have no idea what it is talking about. They get so confused over all of the symbolism and the wording you know, it seems like, especially when we study through the epistles, that, you know, we've gone through letters and we've talked about issues in the church and everything seems pretty normal. And then we get to the book of Revelation and bam, I mean, there's seven-headed monsters coming up out of the sea and stars falling from heaven and a whole third of the world is dying in several different cases and it just seems so out of place. And some people are fearful of the book of Revelation. Some people are con so confused of the book of Revelation that they want nothing to do with it and they just stay away from it at all. They're so intimidated by it. Well, our goal in this study is not to be intimidated by the book of Revelation. It is to give proper biblical interpretation to the book of Revelation. Our goal in this study is not to give in to the sensational prophetic speculation that's found oftentimes when discussing the book of Revelation. But like I said, it is to use our good principles of Bible interpretation to get a good foundation that we can approach this book. For it seems that sometimes interpreters of the Bible, when they get to Revelation, they just throw out all of their interpretive principles that they've been using in the Bible and Revelation just seems to be kind of like a free-for-all. Well, we're going to take this session today and we'll probably take two sessions to introduce the book of Revelation. Today, we're going to look at our, our orienting data for Revelation. We're going to look at our who, what, when, where, and why. And then next week when we come together, we are going to look at how the book of Revelation has been interpreted throughout the history of the church. There are four major views of the book of Revelation, and we're going to examine all of those views next week. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, I did not even know there were four views of Revelation. Well, that's why we're going to look at those next week. But today we're going to give introduction to the overall book and some of the themes of the book. And our objective today is to look at four different areas. The first objective for today is to look at our orienting data. That's the who, what, when, where, and why 
of the book of Revelation, just as we have done with every other New Testament epistle. Our second objective for our message today, our teaching today, is to look at the different genres of the book of Revelation. You know, up until this point, we have been looking at the epistles. Epistles are one genre of many in the Bible. And every other letter we've looked at has been one genre called epistles, letters, letters written from somebody to somebody else. And the book of Revelation is that, but it is also other genres as well. And we'll talk about those in a moment. Our third objective for our session today is to give four keys to interpreting the book of Revelation. I believe that our study of the Bible needs to be guided by interpretive principles and that we stay consistent with those interpretive principles. So we're going to give four interpretive principles that are stated in the book of Revelation that gives context to the book. And then finally, we'll close out today by outlining the major sections of the book of Revelation, basically giving the outline, which we will use in a couple of weeks when we go through the book chapter by chapter. Now, let me just go ahead and say this. Because Revelation is so debated, because Revelation is so controversial, um, when we look through the book of Revelation, here's what we're not going to do. I am not going to tell you what everything means in the book of Revelation. Our goal and my goal in this study is to give us our biblical interpretive principles, to look at the context of the book of Revelation, to look at the ways it's been viewed, and to outline what's going on in the book of Revelation, and then let you decide what you believe those details mean by using our interpretive principles. So we're going to jump right in today with our orienting data for the book of Revelation. We're going to look in three areas. We're going to look at the author, the date, and the recipients of the book of Revelation. When it comes to the author of Revelation, the author is identified in the first two verses of the book. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, the scripture says, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So the author identifies himself as John. And John is identified here as a servant of God. He's not identified as an apostle of Jesus, but he's identified as a servant. But this servant bears witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now that phrase, the word of God, now that should be that should ring a bell in our ears because last week when we looked through the epistles of John, John refers to Jesus as the word. And then in the Gospel of John, John refers to Jesus again as the Word. And in John's epistle, he states that he comes to give testimony, eyewitness testimony, of Jesus Christ. And that's what he says here. 
He bears witness to the word of God, the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. And then we find later on in verse number nine that John is exiled on the island called Patmos. John is an exiled prisoner on the island of Patmos. So most uh, Christian tradition and, and most scholars believe that this is the Apostle John who wrote this. There are other ideas that maybe it was another John of the same name. But whoever he was, and we're assuming it's the Apostle John, he was well known to the churches of Asia, and he carried sufficient authority that he could write a letter of this nature, and the churches would be expected to heed the words of the letter. So there is apostolic authority behind this letter. The date of the book of Revelation is an interesting topic. As we will see next week, the dating of the Revelation is actually important to certain views of Revelation. The traditional date of the writing of Revelation has been in the late 90s, at the end of the first century, around 95 AD, during the reign of the emperor, the Roman emperor Domitian. Now, the evidence for this date is a quote that is made by one of the early church fathers, Arrhenius. Also supporting this late date is uh, Domitian's persecution of the Christians, as well as the conditions of the churches. The late date says the conditions of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 seem to fit a later writing of the book of Revelation. So the majority of scholars have believed that the book was written in the mid-90s, around 95 AD. However, today there is gaining traction the idea that there's a possibility that the book of Revelation could have been written earlier, pre-AD 70, somewhere in the mid to late or around the mid-60s AD. So this early date of the writing for Revelation, again, has gained much attention because The evidence for the late date, even though scholars lean on that evidence, there's really a lack of evidence on some of those late date items. The uh, uh, early dates as well uh, is defended by some of the internal aspects of the book of the Revelation, such as the command to measure the temple in the book of Revelation. If there was no temple standing, would God point out in one of the visions to measure the temple of God? Also, the number of Roman emperors that's listed in the book of Revelation seems to fit pre-AD 70. And also, uh, the number 666 relates perfectly to the Roman emperor Nero. So those that hold to an early date of Revelation look at some of these aspects, and those who hold to the late date look at some of the earlier aspects that we just mentioned. So in this study, especially as we look at the different views of Revelation, I'm going to just lay it out there and tell you, here's what some people believe, here's what other people believe. Just, number one, to give you knowledge. Because I know growing up, I was never told that there were any other ways to view the book of Revelation other than the view that I was taught and I was told. And the reason I was taught and told that is because the people who told me were never told and showed the other ways as well. So my goal here is not to persuade. My goal here is to inform and for you to decide as well. So there are late date 
uh, people that hold to a late date and people that hold to an early date of the book of Revelation. The recipients are very simple. In verse number four of chapter one, uh, the greeting, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, the churches that are in Asia Minor. And John goes through each of those seven churches in chapters two and three as he gives Jesus's message to them. So the recipients of the church are seven churches in the province of Asia Minor. As we continue on to the occasion of the letter, why was the letter written? Well, the letter was written because of a series of prophetic visions that comes to John as a message from Jesus to the seven churches. So John is given a series of visions throughout the book of Revelation. And because of these visions that God gave to John to show to the churches, that's what brought about the writing of the book of Revelation. So the occasion is a series of prophetic visions that comes to John as a message from Jesus to the seven churches about their current conditions and coming tribulations with a promise of vindication and victory. These are churches that were going through persecution. Uh, They're churches that were dealing with their own internal issues. And Jesus has come to them to show them this letter with a promise of vindication and victory for those who overcome. So the occasion was prompted by these visions that John had received. The emphasis of the letter is the emphasis to these seven churches to remain God's faithful people, to remain His faithful people in the world in spite of past, present, or future suffering. The call to these churches is to remain faithful, to be overcomers, to endure, to trust in God, to know that what you are temporarily going through is not the end. And it is not the ultimate definition or it is not the period at the end of your story. For it may look like the enemy has won the victory, but Jesus is the one who ultimately will triumph. And because Jesus triumphs, the churches will triumph as well. So he's reminding them to remain faithful to God and remain God's faithful people in the world in spite of past, present, or future suffering because you are guaranteed the victory through Christ's victory. Christ's victory came through suffering and dying. You know, most people's victory come because they go out and they physically conquer. Jesus conquered by giving his life. It is, to use a picture from the book of Revelation, it is the slain lamb that through his slaying becomes the ruling lion of the tribe of Judah. And to these Christians that are giving their lives and those that are being persecuted, either by the Jews or the Romans or wherever the persecution comes from, even if they die as martyrs, through their death they will reign with Christ. So a wonderful message 
that we have emphasized to the churches. Now, as we go to some of the themes of the book of Revelation, there are many themes. I tried not to overload us with the themes because there are so many themes of the Revelation. So, I listed a few here. This is not an exhaustive list. But first of all, the theme is the person and power of Christ. In chapter 1, John begins with a powerful vision of Christ as he sees the risen, glorified Savior, the person of Christ. And as the person of Christ is revealed through the book, because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it reveals Jesus to us, it reveals his person and ultimately his power, ultimately his power. The second theme is encouragement to the churches. Encouragement because of their suffering tribulation. A third theme, which is a major theme in the book of Revelation, is the theme of the vindication of the martyrs. We find in Revelation souls under the altar that are crying out for God to avenge their blood. And God does so by pouring out judgments upon the persecutors. And so at the end, the martyrs are vindicated. The martyrs are vindicated through uh, the defeat of their enemies. Another theme in the book of Revelation is the victory of God's redeemed. You see pictures in the book of Revelation, a multitude that no one could number from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation, washed in white robes, singing a song of redemption to God. You see the overcomers that the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are encouraged to be. They're encouraged to be overcomers. And we see these overcomers in the book of Revelation. And they overcome by the, the Word of God. They overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the, the Word of God, by, by their testimony, and by laying down their lives for the cause of Christ. So we see the victory of God's redeemed even when it looks like they are defeated. Another major theme in the book of Revelation is the judgment upon Babylon. We see this great city that is called Babylon. And one of the, the ultimate scenes in the book of Revelation is the overthrow and the fall of this ungodly city called Babylon. In number six, our theme is the defeat of evil, the, ultimately, the ultimate defeat of evil. The beast, the false prophet, and, and the dragon, the serpent, they are ultimately defeated. All of God's enemies are defeated in the book of Revelation. Then we find another theme in the book of Revelation, number seven, is a marriage. There is a marriage supper, and there is a marriage between the bride and the bridegroom in the book of Revelation. And then finally, number eight, we see the ultimate victory of God. The ultimate victory of God painted in this beautiful picture of Christ coming to defeat his enemies between the righteous being resurrected and ruling with Jesus Christ and a new heavens and a new earth. And that's what we see as the ultimate theme of the book of Revelation, and that is Jesus' ultimate victory. So there we see a little bit of our introduction on the book of Revelation. Let's continue on as we look as well. There are many unique features about the book of Revelation. 
And three of those we're going to talk about today. The first unique feature is its symbolism. If you did not know this, the book of Revelation is filled with so much symbolism on just about every page of the book, which ultimately has become one of its greatest arguments over the interpretation of the book of Revelation. So the question is, is Revelation to be taken symbolically or is Revelation to be taken literally? And if symbolically, how symbolically? And if literally, how literally? For consider some of the symbolism in the book of Revelation. Strange creatures filled with eyes. A slain living lamb with seven eyes. Four horsemen wreaking havoc. Men talking to mountains. People washing their robes in blood. Locusts with faces of men, teeth of lions, crowns of gold, and tails of scorpions. A lion-headed scorpion, tailed horses, fire-breathing prophets, a seven-headed dragon, a woman with eagle's wings standing on the moon, a serpent that vomits out a river, a seven-headed beast made up of four different carnivores, a two-horned beast that forced men to idolatrous worship, an angel striking a sickle in the earth, frogs coming out of the mouth of a dragon, a prostitute riding a seven-headed beast, Christ returning on a horse with a sword in his mouth, a city made of pure gold that is 1,500 cubit miles high, wide, and long, that's covered in rare jewels and has a wall built with jasper with 12 gates, each made from a single pearl with 12 angels over each gate, a tree bearing 12 different fruits in, in all seasons, That doesn't sound like anything that we have read so far in our study of the epistles. So when you look at how much of the book of Revelation is symbolic, just about everything after chapter 4 or after chapter 3 of Revelation, we see so many pictures, we see so much symbolism, we see so many uh, just exaggerated images And that's what's caused a lot of the debate. And that's what's caused a lot of the mystery in the book of Revelation. All of this symbolism in the book. So the question is going to be, and we'll talk a little bit more in in a moment, what do we interpret symbolic and what do we interpret as literal? And we need to be consistent on what we interpret and how we interpret, or at least have a good reason why we interpret symbolically, or why we interpret things literally. Because as you've just seen, there is a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. The second unique feature that we'll look at today of the book of Revelation is the allusions to the Old Testament. It is very difficult to understand Revelation without understanding the Old Testament. John identifies himself as uh, a prophet in the line of the Old Testament prophets, speaking the Word of God in both judgment and promise of salvation. And even though the book of Revelation does not have one direct quote from the Old Testament, 
there is around four to five hundred allusions back to the Old Testament. When you look at pictures, when you look at language, when you look at symbols, there are four to five hundred, hundred, just about every scene that you see in the book of Revelation is an allusion back to something that is written in the Old Testament. And not many Christians know that. Some of these allusions echo the story of the Exodus. For example, the great city, Babylon, is equated with Egypt and Sodom. The plagues on this city echo Exodus as well. They include hail, darkness, locusts, frogs, boils, water turning into blood, people singing the song of Moses and the Lamb, a woman that is nourished in the wilderness. Those pictures in Revelation come directly from the Old Testament story of the Exodus. We also see pictures from the tabernacle in the Old Testament. We see golden lampstands. We see hidden manna. We see the altar of incense. We see the holy of holies. We see the ark of the covenant. All these echo back to the Old Testament. We see echoes of the Babylonian exile. We see a dried up Euphrates River. We see the command that, or we see the pronouncement that Babylon is fallen. Goes back to the Old Testament. In the two witnesses we find in the book of Revelation, there are two witnesses. This echoes back not necessarily to the Old Testament, but echoes Jesus' ministry. These two witnesses have a duration of three and a half years. They're slain in the city where our Lord was crucified. They're resurrected after three days. They ascend into heaven. So we see again here something in Revelation mirroring something else in the Bible. We call this intertextuality, how, how the book of Revelation interacts with the rest of Scripture. And it is filled, filled. Listen to some of these numbers. Isaiah, almost 80 references from the book of Isaiah in the book of Revelation. Almost 50, over 50 references to Daniel in the book of Revelation. Almost 50 references to Ezekiel. 43 to Psalms, 27 to Exodus, 22 to Jeremiah, 15 to Zechariah, 9 to Amos, 8 to Joel, five, four to 500 allusions back. So to understand the book of Revelation is not to understand the news that's happening today. To understand Revelation is to understand the Old Testament and what God is doing there. These allusions run deep and often overlooked. So the reason these allusions are so very important is because the Old Testament passages give us a foundation and a framework to interpret the book of Revelation properly. So the Old Testament allusions. The next item that we see under the unique features of Revelation is the contrasts. There are many contrasts in the book of Revelation. In fact, there are two women. There is a harlot, an unfaithful woman, a prostitute woman, and there is a bride, the bride of Christ. There are two cities. There is Babylon and there is the New Jerusalem. 
There are two ruling animals. There's the beast and there's the lamb. There are two meals. There's the feast of God, which is judgment, contrasted with the marriage supper of the lamb, which is salvation. There are two destinies. There is the lake of fire, or there is ruling and reigning with Christ in the new Jerusalem. There are two marks. There's the mark of the beast, which seems to be a very popular topic, the mark of the beast. But did you know that the mark of the beast is contrasted with the seal of God on God's people? So in Revelation, you have those that worship the beast with his mark, and you have those that worship God that are sealed in their foreheads with God's mark. So there are two marks. There are two trinities. There's the evil trinity, the beast, the false prophet, and the serpent, the dragon. And then there is the trinity Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are two allegiances, those who worship the beast and those who worship the lamb. So we see that Revelation is filled with contrasts. So that's the unique features that we find in the book of Revelation. Now, as we continue on, let's talk about the term genre. Genre, right here on your screen, genre. Genre, most people are familiar with the term genre by genres of music. We know there are different kinds of music. There's pop music and jazz music and rhythm and blues and gospel music and uh, country music. Those are different genres. They are different types of music. Even though they're all music, they have a distinct sound, a distinct purpose, a distinct rhythm. They're, they're all very distinct. Well, the Bible, and this goes back to our interpretive principles of the Bible itself, the Bible is not one book. The Bible is made up of 66 books. And these 66 books are made up of different genres of writing. So when you have literature and writing, in the Bible we have narrative. Narrative tells a story. We have poetry. We have wisdom. We have history. We have prophecy. We have gospels. Jesus speaks in parables. There are epistles, which is what we've been looked at. An epistle is different from uh, a narrative. A narrative tells a story. Epistles are a letter from one person to another. That's different from the prophetic words of the Old Testament prophets, different from speaking in parables. So there are all different kind of genres in the Bible. And as we said earlier, the epistles that we've looked at have only been one genre, epistles, letters. And we come to Revelation, and Revelation is not one genre. Revelation is not two genres. Revelation is three different genres, which again leads to some of the confusion. The genres of Revelation is prophecy. The book of Revelation is a prophecy. The book of Revelation is an epistle. And the book of Revelation is what we call an apocalypse. Apocalypse. Apocalypse is where we get the Greek word revelation from. 
But let's break down these three very quickly. First of all, prophecy. The book of Revelation is a prophecy because it foretells events that are to come in the future. Prophecy foretells events before they happen. And Revelation is given and it is called a prophecy. Verse number three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. For it is a prophecy. Now, the events of this prophecy, whether those events were to happen soon from the writing of Revelation or from the time or far off into the future, thousands of years, whether they were to happen soon or far off into the future, they are still future. It is still a prophecy. The second genre is an epistle. And here's where we have to be careful. And here's what a lot of people forget when they approach the book of Revelation. As I said before, there, you know, people use proper interpretive principles up until Revelation. It seems when they get the Revelation, they throw them all out, and they only want to interpret it as a prophecy. So they come to Revelation, and they see these symbols, they, they see the visions, and they just treat it only as a prophecy. But to treat it only as a prophecy is to neglect the fact that Revelation is an epistle. And because it is an epistle, that means Revelation was written to an original audience with an occasion and a purpose for that audience. We find here that it has the form of an epistle. There is the author's name in verse number four, John. Also in verse number four, we have the audience to the seven churches that are in Asia. We have an introduction, verse number four as well. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits. So there's a greeting, an introduction, and there's a conclusion at the end. Revelation is an epistle written to an audience for a purpose to them. So that's why, as an epistle, it is primarily, first and foremost, relevant to the original readers in their life setting. Just like the book of Gal the letter to the church at Galatia had to do with what the Galatians were going through, Revelation has to do with what these seven churches has to do with what these seven churches are going through. You can't divorce Revelation from its genre of being an epistle. And our rules in the epistle are, number one, we ask the question, what did the book, or in this case, what did the epistle mean to the original audience who received it? For if this book was only for people thousands of years in the future, it wouldn't have meant very much to those who are reading it. Or at least after chapter 3, it would mean nothing. So why would John add that in there to these churches? And give them instruction in it. For oftentimes we forget, let, let's take the mark of the beast or the number of his name. John gives the instruction in the book of Revelation. Here is wisdom. Number the number of the beast. Figure out the number. This number is 666. 
or 666 actually, 666, that's the number of the beast. Now figure out who he is. John wrote that to seven churches. If that wasn't relevant to them, why did he tell them to try to figure out the beast by his number? So we start to get into some of these questions. But again, we let our interpretive principles guide us. We're not just guided by how we want to interpret it. We don't guide it by how we want to interpret it. We don't guide it by what others are saying. We guide, we're guided through this book by our interpretive principles. And the first interpretive principle to epistles is what did it mean to them in their day? The second question we ask is now, how do we take what was written to them and make it for us today? Because even though it's an epistle written to an original audience, it has eternal significance. So what principles can we apply when we go through the same settings and same circumstances as they're going through? What is God's word to us as God's word was to them? So we have to approach the book of Revelation as an epistle. And then the third kind of genre from the book of Revelation is a term you're probably not as familiar with. You're probably familiar with prophecy, and you're probably familiar with the word epistle, but apocalypse. What is the genre of apocalypse or apocalyptic writing? Apocalyptic writing is something we need to be aware of. If not, we will misinterpret and abuse the scripture. Apocalyptic writing is a certain style of writing using over-the-top, doomsday, end-of-the-world type language and symbolism. It uses this cosmic imagery and visions, and it uses this end-of-the-world symbolism this cosmic imagery and these visions to convey what is happening in a very natural circumstance on the earth. Apocalyptic literature and language is often tied to prophetic writing and is seen in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah uses apocalyptic writing. Daniel uses apocalyptic writing. Ezekiel Zechariah, and even Jesus in his Olivet Discourse uses apocalyptic language, this over-the-top, doomsday, end-of-the-world, cosmic imagery type of language. Now, this originated between around 200 B.C. through around 100 A.D. The Jews produced a large number of apocalyptic writings and books. And that style is very, very similar to the style in the book of Revelation. Some of these are the book of Enoch, the Apocalypse of Baruch, the book of Jubilees, the Assumption of Moses, and there are, so, and there are many forms of this literature. In fact, there are those that kind of wrote a prelude to or an introduction to the book of Esther, later, way later on after Esther was written, and they wrote it in apocalyptic style, and it reads exactly as revelation. So when, the, when John's readers are reading this, they automatically are familiar with the type of language that is being used. 
And Revelation is just like these other apocalyptic writings. Here are some things you can find in apocalyptic writings. You can find that apocalyptic writings take place during a time of tribulation, usually. So does Revelation. Apocalyptic writing portrays the conflict between good and evil using vivid images and symbols. Monsters and dragons, symbolic names, symbolic numbers. You can find that in the book of Revelation. And in apocalyptic literature, a lot of the times the writer is guided by and receives interpretations from angels or heavenly beings, and we see that here. So Revelation is very, very similar to the other apocalyptic writings of its day. And apocalyptic writings have to be interpreted in the light of what they are. So as apocalyptic language uses these cosmic metaphors and symbols to convey these cataclysmic events, and some of these cataclysmic events can be national wars, wars between nations, calamities that happen within a nation, political upheaval, the overthrow of kings can be referred to in apocalyptic language. The, the nations being overthrown by other nations can be described in apocalyptic terms. Divine judgments and disasters are all used, or apocalyptic language is used to describe all of these type of earthly calamities. And the language that it uses, some of this over-the-top imagery, are stars falling from the sky. So when you read prophetic language, and it talks about stars falling, because it's apocalyptic language, it's not talking about literal stars falling. It could talk about a ruler being taken out of power. It could be talking about a nation that is fallen. If you remember when Joseph in the Old Testament had a dream to his brothers and his family. Joseph dreamed a dream in Genesis, in the book of Genesis. You know Joseph in the coat of many colors. Joseph dreamed a dream that the sun, moon, and stars would bow down to him. And it was interpreted by his family that the sun, moon, and stars meant his father, mother, and brothers. He was not talking about literal sun, moon, and stars. He was talking about his brothers. And that is a small formation of apocalyptic language of how it became used. So stars falling in apocalyptic language isn't literal stars falling. The sun not shining or the moon turning to blood. In apocalyptic language, those are not literal events. And we have a lot of writing in apocalyptic styles. I mean, I know there's... You know, been popular books about blood moons and moons turning red. That's not what apocalyptic language is talking about. And to interpret it differently is to misinterpret the genre of apocalyptic language. Um, God coming on clouds to a nation is apocalyptic language. The clouds rolling up as a scroll is apocalyptic language language. It uses these exaggerated pictures, exaggerated animals, seven-headed beasts, you know, animals with many eyes are used to speak of peoples, rulers, and nations. Locusts with men's faces, a lamb that is slain. All of these are imagery 
to portray something else. And these images were never meant to be taken literally, but they were meant to be interpreted symbolically to convey a message in a cryptic way. So one must understand apocalyptic language so you will not misinterpret nor abuse what the writer is saying. So that's, that is what makes Revelation so interesting, is that it's not one genre, it's not two genres, it's three. And each must be clearly seen, each must be clearly appreciated, and each must be given its space to let the type of language interpret the book for us. Interpret the book for us. We may not understand what every little bit of imagery is. I think that's one of the fallacies of Revelation. And I think that's one of the, um, I think that's one of the temptations when we approach Revelation is that we want to find every, what every little thing means. And we take every little detail in the vision and try to make it fit something. Sometimes that's not what apocalyptic language is for. Sometimes it's using all this imagery to convey a simple truth of something happening. So again, we have to go back to recognize and respect what the book of Revelation is. So our next section, section number three, is we want to give four keys that come from the book of Revelation that are four keys that will help set the context of Revelation. For context is king. Context, context, context. In real estate, it's location, location, location. In Bible, in Bible introduction or in Bible interpretation, it's context, context, context. Well, thank goodness Revelation gives us context. And we're going to let these four simple contextual clues give us keys to interpret the book. So let me just read to you these four, and then we'll look at them individually. I've wrote them down in a sentence. Revelation was written to seven literal churches in Asia Minor in signs and symbols during a time of tribulation about things which must shortly come to pass. There's four interpretive keys. Revelation was written to seven literal churches in Asia Minor. It was written in signs and symbols. It was written during a time of tribulation about things shortly to come to pass. And if we use those four principles to read the book of Revelation, then we will be amazed at what we would find out and how we can actually read the book of Revelation, I believe, in a better way, where we're not in speculation, we're not in sensationalism, we're in proper biblical interpretation. And we stay that way through the whole book. So let's break these down by one by one. Number one, the book, and some of these we've already covered, so we're not going to read a whole lot in these. The first one, the book of Revelation was written to seven literal churches. We just talked about this. This is the interpretative principle 
of audience relevance. How was this letter relevant to them? When he told them to read it and keep it, what did it mean to them? Because it was written to seven literal churches, it has audience relevance. And again, we've already talked about this. The question is, first, what did it mean to them? Secondly, what does it mean for the rest of us? Written to seven literal churches. Secondly, in signs and symbols. We just got finished talking some about symbolism. In Revelation, you have symbolism in the characters of the book, the places in the book, the events in the book, and the numbers in the book. The characters, we have mentioned Jezebel, 24 elders, seven spirits, a slain lamb, four horsemen, 144 servants, 144,000 servants of God, Abaddon, Two witnesses, a woman clothed with the sun, moon, and stars, a great red dragon, a man-child, a beast from the sea, a beast from the land, three unclean spirits, a blasphemous harlot, among many others. So, characters. There are places mentioned. Heaven's throne room, the river Euphrates, the bottomless pit, Sodom uh, and Egypt, Mount Zion, Babylon, Armageddon, Lake of Fire, New Jerusalem. All of these signs and symbols. Events. Things that take place in the book, breaking of seals, blowing of trumpets, pouring out of bowls, frequent cosmic disruptions, the sun darkened, the stars falling, a hundred pound hailstones falling to earth, the appearance of the beast, the destruction of Babylon, the wedding of the lamb, a thousand year reign with Christ. You have all of these events that take place. And then you have the numbers. And here's how you know the book is symbolic because of the kind of numbers. Apocalyptic language uses certain numbers. Seven is used over and over and over and over again. Seven, it is symbolic. There's a third used several times. One third is representative of a significant minority. 12 is used, 24 is used, again, over and over. You see 7, you see 12, you see 24, uh, and multiples of them, you see 144,000. That's a symbolic number. All of these are symbolic numbers. Uh, 1,000, for 1,000 years. 1,000 is always used symbolically in the Bible. Uh, 10, there's just all kinds of different numbers that are used to communicate this type of symbolism. So interpreting the symbolism or recognizing the symbolism is so important to a correct interpretation of Revelation. And the very first verse tells us that the book was written in signs and symbols. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, I'm reading from the ESV, and the ESV says, he made it known. By sending his angel. The King James says he sent and signified it. Uh, various English translations use different words for made known, signified. Uh, one uses communicated. One uses made clear. What does that mean? Well, I agree with one of the most renowned Revelation scholars, G.K. Beale, who has written a massive commentary on the book of Revelation. 
And his study into what this word made known or signified means. Bill says this word is a word that means to communicate by symbols. So that means God sent this word and he communicated it by signs and symbols. He signified it, signified it, signified it. He sent it in signs and symbols. He doesn't mean a mere way of conveying information. The reader is to expect that the main means of divine revelation in this book is symbolic. Therefore, most of the things that are about to unfold are not to be taken literally. Here's what G.K. Beale says. We understand revelation, therefore, at least outside of the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3, as a series of revelatory visions which are to be interpreted symbolically. Unless there is strong evidence in the text to the contrary, the visions, whether they be beast, false prophet, seven kings, ten horns, or an army of 200 million, 24 elders, or millennium, are for the most part to be taken non-literally. Because the whole book is symbolic and it's written in symbols. He says, this does not mean that they have no meaning or historical reference, but that the meaning is found symbolically and almost always within the context of Old Testament references, which are run through the visions that God gave to John. Here's what we need to understand. No one interprets all of Revelation literally. Nobody. Nobody interprets all. The question is, what will we interpret as literal and what will we interpret as symbolic? You know, a lot of Bible teachers, and I was taught this, is that we are to always interpret literally first. And then only if the literal doesn't make any sense and cannot in any way, shape, or form be interpreted literally, then and only then do we interpret symbolically. Well, I mean, that's good advice unless you have a symbolic letter and symbolic literature and symbolic writing. So maybe when approaching Revelation, we should think symbolically first. And then when the context is appropriate, then interpret literal. Maybe we approach Revelation differently than what we have been taught. But because we are so determined so many times to interpret it literally, that's when we oftentimes ignore the apocalyptic language side of the book. And we become the judge on what is literal and what is not. And we stop following the interpretive principles based on genre and forms of writing. And whenever we interpret, we must be consistent. There are some commentators that will interpret a falling 100-pound hailstone to earth as literal. They'll interpret the moon turning into blood as literal. They'll interpret fire-breathing prophets as literal. But then just a chapter or two over, they'll interpret a seven-headed beast symbolically. Well, if you interpret this in one chapter as 
literal, why not interpret the other literal? If you interpret this one as symbolically, why do you interpret the other as literal? Why do we switch when we're talking about a woman riding a beast, a prostitute riding a beast? We interpret as symbolically, but then we'll interpret, you know, streets of gold and all of this as literal. So we have to ask the question, what justification do we have to do that? And we need to follow the interpretive principles. So Revelation was written to seven literal churches that has meaning to them. It was written in signs and symbols, must be interpreted that way. And it was written during a time of tribulation. Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, John writes this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. The definite article, in the tribulation. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance of Jesus was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we have to understand the setting that this was written in was during a time of persecution. And John says, I am your brother and companion in the tribulation that is happening around us. So these churches in Revelation were not waiting for tribulation to happen. Tribulation was happening already. In fact, tribulation has happened throughout all of church history. You know, there are, church, there are people today in our world that are suffering great persecution and tribulation, getting their heads chopped off, getting separated from their family, getting their homes and churches burnt down. If you were to go to them one day and say, you know what, there's going to be tribulation on this earth, number one, they would be insulted and they would look at you crazy because they're going through tribulation. These churches were going through tribulation. The early church suffered persecution. Now, the early church's persecution came from one of two places. It either came from the Jews or it came from the Romans. Many uh, of the people being martyred during this time, they were being martyred by their faith. This is the historical time setting of the book of Revelation. And it's written to encourage believers, as we saw in the beginning. It's written to encourage believers who were being persecuted. It's written to assure those who they've seen people give their lives for the cause of Christ. To assure them of their victory of their brothers and sisters. And here is a prime example of the ongoing relevance of the book of Revelation. This is the ongoing, because there's always been tribulation. So this book speaks to every person in every age. Whether or not every individual detail comes to pass or not, this book speaks because it's written in the context and is written to encourage the persecuted churches of the first century that God will ultimately triumph that God will ultimately triumph, good will triumph over evil, and that even if they are martyred, they will rule and reign with Christ. They will rule and reign with Christ. So it was written to seven literal churches in signs and symbols during a time of tribulation, and here's a biggie that we have to consider. Some people just sweep it out of the way under the rug, but we have to consider it. It was written about things that were to shortly come to pass. This is one of the most overlooked interpretive keys of the book of Revelation that there is. Just as we have seen in other epistles, there is a sense of imminence 
in the book of Revelation. We've talked about that before, that every New Testament writer expected something to happen soon, expecting something to happen in their lifetime, whether it be the coming of Christ, whether it be the day of the Lord, you know, whether it be certain types of, you know, judgment, tribulation, whatever it is, they expect it and they wrote about. Remember when we looked at John just last week, little children, it is the last hour and you've heard Antichrist will come and already now is in the world. So John said before, it is the last hour. So every New Testament writer expected something imminent. It's the same way with the book of Revelation. There is no, you want to talk about a literal reading, there is no literal reading of the scriptures I'm going to show you that indicate events thousands and thousands and thousands of years into the future. It promotes the idea that something is soon coming. Let's look at some of these time statements, and they'll be on your notes. Revelation 1.1, the very first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show unto his servants things that must shortly come to pass. In the uh, ESV, it says the things which must soon take place. So I'm getting these four keys right from the book of Revelation, written to seven literal churches in signs and symbols during a time of tribulation about things that must shortly come to pass. Now, if that was the only verse in there, we might could try to explain it away. But in Revelation 1.3, blessed is he that readeth and those that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written therein for the time is at hand. The ESV says for the time is at near. The time is near. Revelation 1-7, behold, he cometh with clouds. That, Revelation 1-7, behold, he cometh with clouds. That's an apocalyptic phrase. That's an apocalyptic phrase. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. Is there anybody alive today that pierced him? All kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Every eye and those which pierced him. Interesting. Then we, so that kicks off the letter. So it begins with these time statements. It establishes context right there. Then at the end of the book, we find some more time statements. In Revelation 22, 6 and 7, And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants things which must shortly be done. Shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. So again, this is an epistle. He's writing to seven literal churches saying, these things must shortly be done. I come quickly. Blessed is he, the people here that keep the sayings, the prophecy of this book. Things we have to consider. We can't brush them off, sweep them under the rug, pretend they're not there. We have to deal with them. That's what you do when you interpret the Bible. Revelation twenty two twelve, And behold, I come quickly, 
and my reward is with me to give to every man according to his works shall be. Behold, I come quickly. Revelation twenty-two, twelve. I skipped one. Revelation twenty-two, ten, and this is an important one. Here's what Revelation twenty-two, ten says. And he saith to me, Do not seal up the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now, this makes a lot of sense when you go back to Daniel. Daniel was given prophecies and he was given apocalyptic visions. But Daniel's prophecies were for a long time off from Daniel's day. So you know what Daniel was told? He was told to seal up the book. For these things that were spoken to you won't happen for a long time. But John, he's told the exact opposite. He's told, do not seal up the book. For the time is near. The time is at hand. And then Revelation twenty two twenty, He which testifies these things saith, surely I come quickly. What do we do with these time statements? I'm just asking the question as an interpreter of the Bible. What do we do with these time statements? We'll see next week with our four views of Revelation. Some views take these time statements literally, as we've discussed the literal and symbolic. While others believe that Revelation happens thousands of years in the future from the time it was written, they can't take these time statements literally. So they have to make the words say something different in order to push these verses off in the future. This goes back to what do we interpret literally and what do we interpret symbolically? Well, in chapter 1, we haven't gotten to the symbolic nature of the book yet. We're in the introduction as an epistle. And three times, he says in the beginning, these things must soon take place. Soon take place. I think that is something worth considering as we use these principles. Well, we've talked about a lot in this session. And hopefully have given you some things to think about, some things to ponder and consider. These are things I've wrestled with myself in the book of Revelation. For I've always been one, I just don't want to take what I'm told and believe it just because I'm told to believe it. I want to search the scriptures. I want to be a good Berean to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. So I pray that you would take these, consider that. Listen, it'll probably take you watching or listening to this several times to digest everything that I've said. And that's okay. That's why we're putting this on video for you to watch it or listen to it over and over again to go over these things so that you can come to these conclusions, to the conclusions you come with on your own, as long as we use proper biblical interpretation. Well, if you give me just a couple more minutes, we are going to close just briefly outlining the major sections of the book of Revelation. So that if you happen to start reading it, you'll kind of know where you're at. And there are many, many different um, outlines. You know, the book of Revelation, is so, there's so much in there. And there's so many details um, that it's hard to come up with a nice, clear, concise outline. And this is probably one of the best that I've been able to find and kind of put together. So first of all, we have the prologue in the first eight verses. 
Um, that's the introduction to the book. Then we have section one. Now, this is divided into seven sections. There's the prologue, and then there's seven main sections. Section one is Christ among the seven churches. The vision of Christ is given and his message to the seven churches in chapters two and three. In section two is the lamb and the seven sealed scroll. Chapters four and five talk about the scene in heaven around the throne room. And then chapters six through eight talk about the seven sealed scroll. Section three are the first six trumpets. So there's seven seals and there's seven trumpets and chapters eight and nine in section three deal with the first six trumpets. Section four, you have this period of 42 months in 10 through 13. Section five, you have the last plagues in chapters 14 and 16, uh, the bowls. Then in in section six, you have seven proclamations of triumph in 17 through 19. And then 20 through 22, you have the new creation. That is section seven. And then you end with the epilogue. So those are the major sections. And there's a whole lot under those that we're going to look at when we go through our, our study walkthrough through the book of Revelation. So I hope you have found this information interesting. Um, again, there's notes available. Take those notes and go over all of this. You know, and I believe, and again, I'm just, I want to make you aware of the information that is out there. I'm not here to tell you what to believe or what view to believe about Revelation. I'm going to show you Revelation from every side and give you a lot of things to think about. So I hope I've given you some things to think about today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, this is going to be a great journey these next two, three, or four weeks going through the book of Revelation. So again, thank you for joining us and have a wonderful, wonderful day.